Welcome to another episode of the Games and Schools and Libraries podcast. I'm Donald Dennis, and I'm here today with... Stephanie Fry. And today we are going to be talking about something new that we have in our library. So very exciting. The Glowforge. Yeah. So we are punching laser light through wood and creating things. And you might ask yourself, even though this is cool, what does that have to do with games in schools and or libraries? But first, what, what is the Glowforge, Stephanie? It's a laser cutter. You pretty much put materials like wood or acrylic. Uh, I think it does leather and fabric. Yep. And chocolate. You could do chocolate, too. You could do chocolate. That seems messy. If you had sheets of chocolate, it will. Yes. Well, I I saw it on the website. They call it a 3D laser printer, which I think is a big old lie. Or at least I've seen it called that someplace. You put in sheets of stuff. It cuts things out of the stuff, and then you can assemble them into other things. Or have nice little coasters that you don't have to assemble at all. Yes. Coasters are the ashtrays of the Glowforge universe, I guess. I mean, or you could do, like, jewelry and stuff. All you got to do is put a necklace on there. Exactly. So uh, so what are your first thoughts? What do you think about the way it works and, and sort of how how it functions as a system? I love it. I love it so much because basically what I ended up doing by the end of yesterday is I made doodles. I inked those doodles. I put them into the Glowforge and then scanned them and then basically cut my doodles out. Right, you scanned them with the camera that was built into the Glowforge. Right. So we, in basically 15 minutes work per, you came up with the idea, got it scanned, and you got it printed because the the small little tokens that you made out of our faces, you know, took about a minute and a half, two minutes to print, and that's about it. Yeah. It was actually a really quick project, so I'm really excited to see the kinds of programs we'll be able to do here with that technology. Right. The kids are going to have a lot of fun with it. Uh, now, we're still developing our policies. Currently, our policy at the library is, hey, if you're here in Polly's Island and you want to use the Glowforge and the main auditorium is not closed because we have to vent the tube out through the door, uh, we're, sometimes, we are, we're sometimes super primitive about the strangest things. Uh, you can bring your own material and get it cut, which means we'll have to make sure that it's legit stuff. But we're also going to buy material so that when we're running classes that the kids will be able to make things or come up with their own doodles and do their own stuff with it. So we'll not they they won't have to bring their their materials for those kinds of classes. What else did we make? Um we made Harry Potter coasters. Mm. Yeah, okay. So uh, we went on to the Glowforge has some free stuff available that you can say, "Hey, these are the programs that I want want to use or the uh, patterns." And some of them are amazing. And actually, I think I think the Harry Potter coasters we actually got from Thingiverse. And that's right. That's what I was going to say. And then there's another deal where Thingiverse. And I also think that Glowforge may have some patterns you can purchase. Yes. Uh, um, but I haven't been paying that much attention to that particular aspect because I got no budget for that. That's I fair. spent all my budget on the Glowforge. <laughs> um, yeah, so Thingiverse. What is Thingiverse? Uh, Thingiverse is a website where people will put up their plans for things they've designed and those plans can be things for laser cutters or for 3d printing right and so we have some amazing stuff on there when you're searching you have to put uh what to make sure you get the uh the laser cut stuff um i've tried laser cut laser sometimes does it too right yeah they, they, it doesn't search 
it doesn't do a good job at making it easy to search for the type of project you're looking for. Um, so if you're looking for, like, if you do a search on, like, um, Gloomhaven or Settlers of Catan or something like that, you're going to get all the 3D print stuff in with all the 2D, you know, woodcut things. Well, and if you're really lucky, somebody will have been kind enough to put them under a collection called Laser Cut. Right. Sometimes that happens. So it's nice. Um, could use a little bit more organization, but I think that about a lot of things, I guess it's the library blood <laughs> in me. Um, we also printed out some tiny Eevees. Yes, so Pokemon stuff. And I uh, picked out a, uh, a dice tower thing to, to make. And it's really cool because it'll hold the dice. It folds out. You've got a place to store your dice. It's got some really cool engravings uh, on it. Um, and there will be pictures associated with this. I'll put pictures of all the things there. Um, but now, if, for use in the library, what, what kind of programs do you see us utilizing it for here? I can totally see you making box insert stuff for mm. it, for our beautiful board game collection. Right. Um, That'll make it a lot easier to circulate games if we have box inserts that say, hey, there should be 15 of this in this spot or what have you uh, to sort of get things put back away. I think that'll be great. I could also totally see us making like really cool custom book display stuff. Oh, yeah. You, you know, you could have... A, a cool plaque that's a hey, book of the month or, you know, library and recommendations where it's got sort of those kinds of plaques. You could even make bookmarks if you got some really thin, like, sheets of wood instead of, you mm -hmm. know, thicker stuff. So it could be less than a, a millimeter thick that you could use. And I think that would be great. That would be well. fantastic. And most of all, I can absolutely see us using it for escape room design. Oh, yeah, we've already talked about that. And board game design. Right. And I think with board game design, what it really offers is the ability to do rapid prototyping. It's like, hey, I need hexes or elements of a certain size to see how I would fit this board together or, um, you know, how we want to create pieces so that we could have a finished looking prototype so that people feel a little better about what they're doing. Anything to get the kids excited about making forward progress on whatever, you know, whatever they're doing for their design stuff. Mm-hmm. And also we have this cool, uh, you know, pad here that has got the digital pin and stuff. We hook that up to the right art program. We'll be teaching some digital arts with that and then letting people cut stuff out. Um, so I think that'll be neat as well in addition to prototypes. So what, what kind of, uh, we do a lot of escape room talk here on the show. What kind of stuff would you like to do with the laser cutter uh, for escape rooms? I... I feel like there are so many possibilities that I'm like that dog that's like sitting there standing by the highway watching all the cars go by and not sure which one to chase yet. <laughs> um, because I've seen like gear puzzles. I've seen light sort of stuff on Thingiverse that it, I know you were talking about a light puzzle and that would be amazing. Um I'm oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, thinking... want to, I want to do a special lamp that when put in a specific place um, in, in the room, it, it will it will illuminate something that, that gives the clues what they're looking for. Um, you mentioned gears. Gears. Um, and that could be something that triggers a magnetic shift. It could be gears where you're like, hey, you do this to open a box or what? What, what kind of stuff would you do with gears? Um... I would probably 
That's a good question. I feel like there's so much you could do with gears because you could have them have to place them in a certain way and maybe create a picture or something with the cogs or maybe they have to use the gears as a kind of like decipher mechanism because it's a, a cipher. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and you could even do like decoder wheels. Right, yeah. Um, real, I'm thinking, yeah, sort of a decoder wheel type deal. Um, Not to put you on the spot. Totally I, just, you on the spot. I feel like there's so many things. Well, and for something that's super easy, and this is something you wouldn't even have to use as part of an escape room, is that with our kids, I like the idea of hiding little clues that they have to snap together jigsaw puzzle-wise. Yes. And so you could easily take a big image, throw it on there, and then tell it to cut it up as well. So you've got a pre-done jigsaw puzzle, and that would be a lot more durable than the blank jigsaw puzzles that we were going to use for one of our uh, for one of our other rooms. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that's the other thing I'm actually really excited about the laser cutter for, is some of the, like, having players find bits of a thing and then having to assemble it because Mm -hmm. I feel like the laser cutter is going to be amazing for pieces like that. And I just, I keep thinking back to our cool sort of science room where we had the anatomy puzzle. Which, okay. So you say that. So Stephanie designed this great puzzle, which she crafted out of Warbler really, which is a thermal plastic. And so, but she had to handcraft it and put magnets in it and, um, assemble it in that sort of fashion that but imagine the atomical figure made out of wood that would be neat but I think I like what you originally did better because it was 3D and vibrant and colorful that's fair but on the other hand you, no, could, no, no, no. you could do a rib puzzle or no, 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 no. A, hold on hear oh, me out all right, all with right. the vibrant warbler bits on a little wooden mannequin piece yeah, okay, so the, that would make the backdrop, because she, when you assembled the pieces, they had to go on in a specific place to sort of help people figure out where everything is to do the formula. And we could actually make it out of, like, two sheets. One's the magnet sheet, and then we glue the other sheet on top. Right. Yeah, so you could do a, you could just do an, an etching into a really thin sheet that goes on. So it'd be exactly like what we did in foam core, but more durable. Right. Um, uh, the, the judge will allow it. All right, that would be really neat. And in fact, that's sort of what we're talking about is that anything we need to do is going to be more durable. You could do a wooden box that had some cogs hidden in it already, but there's an open panel where you stick in a new one and people will not be able to see what are the other cogs going to do. Oh. And so maybe it's not all visible and that would be a great way to do your your cog puzzle. Like, oh, I turned this three times that way, four times that way. Hooray. You can print out your own cryptixes. Um Yes. With uh, with this sort of element, and you can make boxes. You, there's so much that you can do that it's just, it's so exciting. I'm telling you, dog chasing cars. That's I'm, where I am. There I'm, are so many ideas. Yeah, I'm thinking that, you know, non-escape room related, it might be fun to make a, a big block puzzle for the young kids that is the library. Oh, that would be and cute. And so that then they, hey, then they have the puzzle of our library. And so it's something that they can do because you've got like the alphabet puzzle to this, that puzzle, and you can have the pictures of what the different areas are, right? Uh-huh. And then, you know, so the kids can play with that. So if the mom is ever gone, you know, like, where's mom? I can't find mom. It's like, oh, she's over in the adult literature section, which is the book on the puzzle. Where is that? And then they can find their mom. That would be cute. 
Not that, not that I, I don't think we actually have random kids who get lost from their parents at our library all that often, but. I think it's happened once or twice. You know, yeah. Some parents um, just leave their kids. You all know the pain. If you're listening to this show, you know the pain. But, I, and the puzzles, I'm excited about that too, just because it's like you could have a puzzle in an escape room and you could have it like perfectly themed where say it's like heart valves that they have to assemble or. Yeah. <gasps> oh, oh, you know, and another thing is I saw that there was Charleston Harbor. Someone did a 3D rendering of Charleston Harbor, like it had different layers, sort of like a topographical map Ooh. where each layer. You could do like Georgetown and Georgetown Harbor, right? And then put that on the wall. Like, hey, this is our local area. And so it could be like at the Walter Library or at an escape room. You could make some of the pieces like, oh, if you twist this and take this out, then all of a sudden, what was under that building? Yeah. You now have access. Oh, oh there's so many puzzles. So That's what I mean. There's just so many things you can do with that. I just. Right. So I'd like to let our listeners, invite our listeners rather, if you have a laser cutter that you have used in any of your programming, please let us know, you know, up on Board Game Geek Guild or, you know, uh, go even to the Inverse Genius page and respond to this episode. We check the comments sometimes. Uh, and let us know how you use it or tell us on Twitter. How do you use your laser cutter for gaming or teen activities? Because there's so much to do. Um, I want to print out some circuit boards, you know, Ooh. and we've got breadboards so you can put stuff around them. Um, we've got the flora things. I think we can do some light up boxes. Oh, that's true. That will be so good. Um, Cause imagine the kids can probably build like robot cases and stuff now. Too. Yes. Oh, that would be neat to do just some sort of, Simple, simple robotics because with the Nintendo Labo, right, um, or the or the arms and whatnot, there is various robotics things. There's no reason why we couldn't find kits like that somewhere that we can print out. What's this? Are you saying we need a switch now and we need to laser cut the cardboard pieces? I never said we needed a switch ever. Well, okay, maybe when I saw the first Labo commercial, you did. I said, you know, that would be nice. But <laughs> then I realized the robot suit would be too small for me. Oh. oh, it's well, a laser cutter. It is. We can customize it. And so we also do a lot of role-playing games here. So it'd be neat to make little props that it's like, oh, here, you find this amulet. Oh, that would be pretty cool. And then they have that. Of course, the dice box we've already talked about. You know, you could even laser cut terrain, that kind of nonsense. So there's there's just so much in so many different ways. And that's really sort of why we went for the laser cutter instead of the 3D printer. Because I really think it's harder to use a 3D printer than it is to to make a laser cutter work, especially since the Glowforge is so snazzy. With the scanning feature, with the ability to find stuff online that you can do and you can put it there, and you can't walk away because you don't want your library to burn down. Um, but you don't have to worry about spaghetti monsters quite so much. Um, yeah. If you've ever seen uh, a 3D printing go horribly wrong, it looks like whatever it is has been attacked by spaghetti. Though we do hope to get a 3D printer within the next eight months or so. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good to know. Good to know. Um, well, all right. So I think that's, unless there's anything else you have to say about Glowforge, we should do a really quick thing here uh, and let everybody know how your Ravenloft campaign wrapped up, uh, and then we'll call it a day. Okay. Um, I just, I love it. There's so much versatility. It's... Right. Just the sheer amounts of things... You can do with it. It's like, I feel like you could just find a reason to need it. 
<laughs> Even some of our technophobic librarians have, have said, oh, oh, we want this. We want you to print out little wooden name badges for us. Or we want this or that, that or the other. So what I think I'm going to do, my big project, is I'm going to print light up acrylic name badges. Oh, that'll so, be cool. So that you basically you etch their names into some kind of acrylic. And then you've got an LED light that makes their name glow on their badge. And I don't know, maybe their favorite book or author or something. That's that's what I hope to get done before the end of August. That'd be amazing. I just have to get the parts for it. Oh, and so check the show notes for a referral link for for our library so that if you decide you want it, you will get a discount off of your Glowforge. And we will, I don't know, I think maybe the library will get credit to get more stuff. But if not, at least you'll get a discount. That's the important thing. So, all right, so... Let's talk about running games, specifically D&D and the Curse of Strahd, at the library. I can't believe we did it. We, we cut some corners, though. We cut some corners, but we still did it, because that was weeks of campaign. That was. It was, um, yeah, at least since um, September of last year, I yes. guess it has been going and going, uh, that, we, that you have been running for us. The Curse of Strahd campaign for D&D 5th edition. Yes. It's a fascinating setting. So, real quick, Dungeons & Dragons, a role-playing game. You play heroes normally. Uh, you know, you have your power fantasy fulfillment of going around killing monsters and taking their stuff. But the Curse of Strahd is set where? What is what is the whole premise of the uh, so Strahd? The premise of the Curse of Strahd is you get pulled into this world by these mists. And the world you end up into is this sort of dreary land where everybody sort of fears the Lord of the Realm, who is Strahd, and he lives up in his big castle, and he's a vampire. And it's very, it's very like vampire hunters and werewolves. and It's, it's very Hammer Horror feel. It's got that feel of an old Hammer Horror movie. Lots of dry ice fog. You know, lots of scroungy looking peasants. Yeah. Uh, you know, not not a lot of uh, uh, heroic fantasy looking tropes. Yes. And it's got a lot of interesting sort of monster tropes because I feel like you do have some of the you've definitely got the vampires. You've definitely got the werewolves, witches. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I feel like there were some other tropes. I want to say well, like we had the sort of we had the yeah. Baba Yaga was represented with a different name. Yeah. And there's. Kind of some Frankenstein-ish. Yeah, yeah. Um, Werewolves, I think you mentioned already. Mm -hmm. Liches. Liches. Um, weird puppets. Well, that was me. Um, creepy sort of... Um, dolls, creepy dolls. Yeah, creepy dolls everywhere. Um, and so the premise of the whole adventure is that in theory, the players are trying to get out, and to do that, they feel like they have to defeat Strahd. We never tried to get out. You guys pretty much saw opportunity for funds and for um, fighting evil and went for it. Yeah, it's like, here's a bunch of people we can take advantage of and, <laughs> and save. You know, we got to save them to take, you know, to th rob them blind, because my character was a thief. But uh, anyway, so... It was weird because playing, I, I am absolutely certain that playing this at the library changed both a little bit of the tone, a lot of the mood, and a lot of the stuff that you were able to do with the game. Absolutely. 
I find horror fascinating because you can still make things creepy and all that, but like you can't be as graphic at the library. I feel like there's certain subjects that you just kind of need to avoid. It's like Strahd is very seductive, but he has to do so within kind of reason, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it does to me. I played through it. Yeah. Well. You know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you're you're never trying to sort of go overboard with him kind of showing up and being like be mine <laughs> you me now open your neck yeah essentially and when it comes to the the monsters it's like I, I feel like a lot of the tone you end up having to do is instead of showing like graphic detail and stuff you have to have more of the like what do they want unknown like and sort of hints at creepy things like, oh, the door slammed behind me and nobody was there. Yeah, a lot of spooky shadows and strange events. Right. Instead of like, oh, there's blood and gore over there. And there was a lot of both. You know, it, one of the first big scenarios that we dealt with was baby pies, right? Where uh, yes, these crones were kidnapping children or, or buying children off the parents and turning them into pies and selling them to other people. Yes, and I, I so I feel like the difference is, like, I can still have that as a theme. It's just I have to be more, like, there's this, there's this. At no point is there a, and, and I don't know that I would want any of the, like, evidence of that kind of thing, but it's like you have to show sort of the beginnings, the result, the villain of it. And it's like I can't have any weird sort of graphic details in between. Right. At no place did you say, oh, you see that there is a child, you know, the corpse of a child being butchered. Right. Exactly. You know, right there. That kind of thing. Um, it's like we can have the pies. We can have her stealing children. We can have them, like, in cages to be rescued. But, yeah, there's none of the really graphic, like, oh, there's a body and stuff has happened here. That kind of thing. I feel like a lot of it is just keeping it classy. Uh, and there wasn't as much general other romantic industry kind of things that might have happened, you know, if we weren't running with, you know, a bunch of teenagers. Yeah. There were, because of time constraints, several of the adventures were sort of, it almost felt like you, you felt freer to allow us to get away with unique solutions instead of having to hit point uh, chew our way through the scenarios. Oh, absolutely. Because there are certain times when... Essentially, you start at point A, you have to run all the way to point B, but the players think that point B is the last place they have to go to. They need to return something from point B back to point A, and then complete it. And just with our setup, there was no time for that. Right. And we were under additional time pressure uh, because you will be leaving the area. So whereas you could have kept this going on instead of a... And an eight to ten month campaign, you could have, you could have run this for another seven or eight months, probably, if we wanted to do it all, right, step by step. I feel well, and here's the other thing. Looking at it, I feel like if you're running it for sort of a library program sort of thing, mm -hmm. I think I feel like the approach I took is still probably a better idea because, say, you're running it for like teenagers or something like that. Yep. I don't know they're going to have, they're going to want to go from 
A to B back. You know? Right, right, right. Um, and it did feel like in, in some cases, you know, you were sort of handicapped by, oh, time, this, that, or the other. But in other cases that you managed to sort of smooth over some of the bumps that the actual product had, which we should go ahead and talk about that real quick. So for Curse of Strahd, we purchased what? We purchased the book. The campaign book. The GM screen. Yes. And a deck of cards. Right. I love the deck of cards. Now, I would have loved the deck of cards if they weren't so cheaply made. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was neat to have them there as a prop. And it it felt like they should have, if they made those things, that they, they probably should have played a much larger part in the game. Though they did sort of benchmark certain elements that you go, ah, okay, this is the thing. So what I didn't tell you is that they totally can. Due to time constraint stuff, I didn't learn. So in the back, they've got sort of the... It's almost like a tarot guide for like, this one means death. This one means blah. So if I wanted, I could have given you guys some kind of weird tarot thing and Mm -hmm. sort of also worked that in. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... So that's that's a possibility, but that's it's one of those cases of that's a huge learning curve with all of the other stuff. Right. And I think that's one of the biggest things. So you had to read the book before we started. You then had to reread all the sections before we played. Not everything was particularly well organized. Per tip, if you ever run this, double check your appendix. As often as you can. As often as you can, because there are some NPCs that... You've got the sections that you meet them in. Right. So the NPCs are, are characters run by the game, not by the players. Yeah. And so you've got the section you meet them in, but if you check the appendix, it's got like, well, here's all of this other information that will probably be super important. Yeah. Um, even just a like little C appendix would have been nice in the text. So my expectation is that, that this book that we've now played our way through I'm hoping that one of the teenagers who played it, you know, maybe this, well, probably not this year, but maybe next year or the year thereafter, that he picks it up and runs it for a group of folks because he's going to learn a lot more about role-playing games if he's played through the game and then he goes through and he sees all the stuff that you had to deal or struggle with. Oh, yeah. And it's it's pretty interesting. and. I recommend picking up one of these campaign books if you can get someone to run it at your library. And then you've got it for circulation after the fact. Um, so it doesn't have to be just sort of a one-time thing. Right. They're really good. I, I'm i super fascinated by their campaign books. Um, I really kind of wanted to run Prince of the Apocalypse or Princes of the Apocalypse at some point. but We got but, that one too, didn't we? Yeah, we did get that one too. Which is why I was so excited about that one, too, because that one seems to have some really interesting NPCs and sort of an interesting flow. But everybody around here was more like, oh, you have Strahd. I'm super interested in that. So I'm like, let's do this. I like vampires. And and honestly, when I was in high school, I ran essentially Strahd's Castle before I knew it was Strahd's Castle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This is based off of an old, old, uh, one of the most famous Dungeons and Dragons supplements of all time. Oh, I believe, I believe, I feel like this absolutely inspired a lot of vampire stuff. Yeah. Between it and Anne Rice, they got a lot of answer for. <laughs> so, I feel like I probably picked up on that media as a high schooler and was like, yes! 
Well, all right then. Um, any final thoughts about running a campaign or having a campaign run at the library? What kind of stuff should folks look out for or take into account before they start running? Um, I feel like the biggest thing that's going to be a struggle that you need to take into account is players dropping and coming. Just because we had during the game a bunch of people be like, and, and while I got lucky and I didn't really have people drop, but it was mostly these sort of guest inserts because I had a lot of people be like, oh, you guys are playing d and I want to jump in. Right. And of course, you should get as many people into your games as you can, as the GM can comfortably run. I think that the one of the worst things that happened during your game was that the players who did the drop-in didn't understand what they were getting into. Right. I think... Part of it was they thought it was a one-time deal. Right. Or they, they didn't understand what the Curse of Strahd was. Or, they didn't or yeah, they didn't understand the world. That, hey, we are playing people who are fighting off evil. We are not going to be baby pie-eating monsters, you know. We did have a baby pie-eating monster. It was... It was horrible. It was supposed to be the cleric. Yeah, it's supposed to be, yes. That's what makes it worse. Yes, the... It, Context is everything, right? Um, uh, and so that's, I think that's something to do is, you know, hey, if you want to play, just understand this is the buy-in. And one of the things that we didn't have a lot of problems with, but it did sort of rear its head a couple of times, was when you've got teenagers playing. Actually, that's not fair. That's really not fair because the biggest problem you had wasn't the teenagers. Um, when you've got... A when group, you've got players playing. When you've got players. You've got to make sure a couple of things. And I think one is that everybody has to be a fan of everybody else's character. Yes. All right. And that there is, don't be a jerk. All right. It's like you, my character can fight with your character. That's fine. As long as you and I aren't being petty about it. Right. Right. As long as like out of game, you're like, Hey, that was cool. We're gonna, we're gonna not get along and it's going to be fun. Right. And so, but you've got to make sure that they're not doing stuff to be petty. And I've seen in other D and D games, where this character is doing something to do something to fail because the other player is not doesn't like the way the game is going. Uh-huh. And it can destroy an evening. It can destroy a game. And you just got to put a stop to that. So look, step away from the game and say, look, you're, you're going to try and keep this people person from sneaking around. Um, you guys need to talk this through because you're supposed to be heroes or you're supposed to be this or that. Yeah. If you're okay with this, if both of you are fine with this happening, then that is great because things are about to happen. But if you as a player are feuding with this other player, that's not a table thing. That shouldn't be happening here. But that's another, I think, a whole episode in and of itself. Oh, absolutely. Um, there's just, there's so much to consider. <laughs> you know, and having more props, more handouts, more, hey, here's names and pictures, those kinds of things, all great. Oh, yeah. Um, so many ways you can kit out your game that's pretty cool. Right. And just, just know when you're getting into it, it's a huge, it's going to take a long time. Because I would say for Strahd, it's going to be at least one per session per location. At least. Right. Probably more. Plan on two, but at Plan least on one. two, but at least one. And that all depends on how much side shenanigans you let people get into. I mean, not everybody is going to set up a militia. Not everybody is going to go and do... You know, try and set up their own system of bounties. Or, you know, or what have you. Go recruit every single NPC they've ever met. And try and get them killed in the final battle. Yes. It was glorious. At least we had theme music. <laughs> At least we had theme music. 
Um, so wonderful. I, I think that's a couple of great things we talked about. Glowforge. We talked about uh, running a campaign, and uh, and so I think we'll wrap it up here. Um, we'll be back in the future and talking about other makerspace stuff as well as other games and libraries. So um, I'm Donald Dennis, and I'm Stephanie Fry. And you've been listening to Games in Schools and Libraries. Uh, contact us if you'd like to be on the show, if you have any ideas for things you want us to chat about. And you can also find out more about us and the other people who create our other fine shows over at InverseGenius.com, where we also host on board games, on RPGs, on minis games, and the Room Escape Divas.